Hello and welcome to the RISE podcast series, where we aim to explore the stories behind education research and practice as part of the multi-country research on improving systems of education endeavour funded by UK Aid, Australian Aid and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Hello and welcome to this episode of the RISE podcast. My name is Julius Atura, a research fellow on the RISE program. In this episode, we bring you a recording of a panel conversation that happened at the University of Oxford's Blavanik School of Government during the RISE annual conference in September 2023. And for purposes of clarity and length, this podcast is an edited version of the conversation. The panel featured Nompomelelo Moholoane, also known as Impumi, from the Department of Basic Education in South Africa, Rachel Hinton from the UK's Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office, and former RISE Research Director, Land Pritchard. This conversation was moderated by Laura Savage from the International Education Funders Group. In what indeed turned out to be a great fun conversation, as Laura had predicted from the very beginning, the panel started by looking back at the questions that existed at the start of RISE, and whether enough was now known about those questions 10 years later. This led into a deeper reflection on the difference between the motivating questions for RISE and the What Works Hub. The panel then debated what commitment to learning really means and what cultural shifts are needed for this commitment to materialize. And connected to this, what implementation science really means. Finally, they concluded with a reflection on how the thematic shift from systems to implementation will likely play out at the What Works Hub in the years ahead. I trust you will have great fun listening to this conversation. Hi, everyone. My name is Laura, and I've got a great fun conversation lined up. We're really going to talk about the shift from systems research to implementation science. And I think it is worth just stopping and reflecting for a moment. And I think there were a number of us who sat around the table 10 years ago. The questions that are being asked by this program are the ones that we're still asking today. Um, I say that, and yet are they? Because some of the questions I heard today are still the questions that we were asking at the start of RISE, you know? So the start of RISE was going back to Tessa, Justin, and everybody else's paper, thinking, well, sure, like an NGO can use contract teachers and the government can't, like, how is that not working? Or, you know, kind of seemingly obvious things that are done in education that don't seem to be working either at scale or just as Paul demonstrates again and again at all. Um, And I think there are still some of those questions today. We're hearing a lot of, um, a lot of organizations, people, researchers, practitioners still searching for this seemingly invisible, impossible thing called scale. But there are a lot of questions. I mean, I heard today even things like, we have suffered through, this is Renata saying, we've suffered through the implementation. Um, Bela, you saying, were things designed to fail today? Ricardo, how do you create the political environment in which um, actors are going to support what's been designed? And I think those questions were there at the start of RISE. Um, and one of the goals of RISE was to enable everyone, you know, enable us all to take a step back and think about the system. The word system was very core to rise at the start. Um, so the conversation today is going to go through that journey of, of 10 years of questions, no pressure, um, and, and look ahead to, to what comes next. And we've had a, a few hints of that today. It's going to be a conversation. I'm going to kick off with some questions and then we'll come out and extend the conversation after that. Um, and really, I, Mpumi, I want to kick off with you. Um, because as many of you will know, Mpumi's got like a dream job. It's not the easiest job in the world I can imagine, um, but one that really is connecting research generation to life. Um, And maybe just as a sort of baseline, where are we then? Um, My first question to you is, what are the the questions in your and your colleagues' day jobs that you still don't think you've got answers for? Um, Too many. Um, So, I think firstly we have a sort of formal research agenda that we've solicited across the department to ask questions on different aspects. So literacy, violence, parental involvement, nutrition, etc. So that's a public good that's aligned with the medium-term framework. So that's like the government plan, five-year questions that sort of aesthetic and publicly available. But I think aside from that, questions that still remain 
um, after all is said and done, are some very specific ones and broader ones. Some of the specific ones are still, after participating in years and years of international and regional assessments, um, we still don't know what children know in the early grades. So I can tell you that 81% of children, according to Pearls, can't read for meaning. I can't tell you anything beyond that. Um, so what do grade ones and twos and threes actually know and then how does that fit into strengthening the curriculum? So there's still questions around that. We still have big questions that have largely remained ideological around language. Um, when should we be switching languages of instruction? Is the current policy appropriate or not? Um, if you look at the African context, there's a lot going on, contradicting stories, lots of countries switching to English too early, in my opinion. Uh, UNESCO, which told us to switch in grade three years ago. Uh, and then current questions around, are we switching too early? Uh, those questions have largely remained ideological. They're around politics and who's in power and not really the evidence of when to switch. So there's a bunch of those. Uh, then I have a second level of questions around when you are designing for a second intervention. So initially we had these RCTs, how do you teach reading for meaning for the first three grades, but how should we be thinking about teachers now? They've had some intervention. Do you have the same dosage, same depth? Do you come back in one year versus three years? Um, what are the impacts you expect to see on the second cohort and the third cohort? So some of that. And then some long-term studies. Um, where are the effects of these early interventions that we've had? Um, do you see them later? And maybe a last um, version, which is a slightly higher level. How do you get things like the Auditor General, who is, a, I guess, a, a watchdog in the state, of the state, to not just measure inputs, um, but to measure outcomes and how do you scale that up? How do you get Treasury to be driving, um, delivering outcomes instead of telling us to cut teacher budgets? So those are still bigger questions than like literacy or numeracy. Sometimes I think the word system and the system's challenges make it feel like everything is a problem. And then how do you drill? I mean, because the answer to any one of those questions feels like it's a research program in itself, right? But why is it then that you think you're not getting the answers? I mean, some are, like I've said, ideological, some are around what evidence exists. So you have a lot of diagnostic work, but not a lot of interventions that are measured. So you know what would work at scale. Um, and some of them are around political economy. Um, they're not around education, actually. They're about the systems, uh, how decisions at a broad level get made, what are trade-offs. Um, for example, we have a presidential youth initiative that's massive and focuses on employment but it's not focused on education. But we do have real unemployment issues in South Africa. So how do you decide whether you want to keep more young people employed or you want to half their numbers and use that money for education? So, yeah. yeah. And Rachel, that, I mean, it makes me think a little bit of some of the conversations that we had. And for those who don't know, I was at that then differed at the start of RISE, and Rachel was my boss for many years. Um, I won't ask any incredibly difficult questions. <laughs> but one of the things at the start of RISE was not only about what the questions were, but who should be answering them, and to trying to bring people from different academic disciplines into looking at education. Economists obviously being one large cohort, but also some of the really exciting stuff that I've loved um, through RISE has been some of the anthropology, the public admin, the Marx stuff you know, on, on innovation. Like, There's been some really interesting angles coming at education problems. Um, and, and you at the time had a graph that set out, this is the state of education research. My feeling today is we don't have, as a global education community, a, a view on the state of education research today. But given that you were the kind of author of that, of that graph, where do you think we've come from then? And, and uh, I guess a little bit about what's RISE's role in all of that been. Hmm. No, thank you. And maybe, um, maybe the clever IT could, could put the graph up for you. <laughs> um, because I think, uh, you know, we actually have made incredible progress. And sitting here with Lant, I think it's actually testimony to an economist who was prepared to listen to the anthropologist. You know, Yamini, I think, is probably one of the people you often talk most about, Lant. And I think that your convening of an interdisciplinary 
group has been quite phenomenal, and I think it genuinely has shifted the game. And I think Laura, also we, you know, we had at the time on the on the um, axis at the bottom, we talked about quantitative research, and that was you know mainly economists, but there weren't so many of those. Um, they were, you know, there were fairly few studies at the time. And I think one example of how far we've come is actually if we think about the Jeep um, panel and you know, the Global Education um, Expert Advisory Panel and the Smart Buys report. Just in the last two years, between the last report and the one we um, have just put out, 250 new studies um, that are in there, 47,000 downloads of those reports. Um, I think it's quite phenomenal that we've really you know, grown that body. And I think also on, on um, you know, the other axis, from micro to macro, we were mainly doing lots of micro studies, particularly the qualitative side. We weren't really talking about scale. We weren't really looking at, at um, things through government systems. And I think um, all credit to um, the RISE community and all of you who've been part of that, trying to really shift how we do that and what we look at. And so I think that's been um, you know, key. And another indicator of that do you remember, and I think we've got um, Christine Beggs in the audience here, and I think we've got Lewis Crouch, um, you know, USAID and the bank at the time, and the UN. There were just four of us saying we needed to increase the quality of evidence. And, and Maria somewhere, who was coordinating it all, um, Maria Brindlemeyer, um, over there, um, four members. It's now 40 members, Laura and six interest groups because people aren't content with just having the, the general panels. They want to deep dive into the topics. Um, uh, you know, early childhood learning, teacher professional development, climate, education and emergencies, and so on. So, so I think that's been one area. I think what's also really um, fascinating has been the evidence uptake as well and what's happened there. So RISE has shifted the narrative and I think it's partly because there have been those different voices. The WDR um, 2018, um, you know, I think um, the fact that the RISE conceptual framework has been so influential in some of these and thinking about learning trajectories and for many they were talking about access and they weren't talking about learning and we can forget that, that 10 years ago um, particularly donor-driven donor programs weren't thinking about the, what happened inside the classroom. Um, and I think, I, I don't know who's here from the India team, but having just had the privilege, oh, there's Abhijit, um, having just had the privilege of spending a month in India, it was really telling that the 2020 new evidence, um, the Education Act, is very informed by all of the research that Abhijit and Kartik and, and others have done. And that, having academics who genuinely engage with policy, is again a really unique, um, unique thing. But perhaps, I would say, the most exciting thing, and I know this was part of you know, your vision and your push having come from the work in, in Bangladesh, what about the governments and um, change at the government level? Um, so I'll just tell you a little story. Who, who here has been to the Education World Forum at all? The okay, quite a few. The largest gathering, as Laura well knows, of over 100 ministers from around the world. And this year it was actually it just fell after the day of the King's coronation. So London was in a buzz and um, <laughs> we were in the big, big forum with glass windows and we were overlooking that Westminster Abbey and a, a boardroom. And there you had you know, the usual ministers around the table and um, the fabulous Sally Grantham McGregor inspiring them about early childhood. And they were looking you know, intently at her because, of course, they weren't really doing much on early childhood. And they sat back and said, so do you mean what we've been doing is actually a bad buy. And Rukmini, of course, jumped right in and said, yes, actually, <laughs> with her usual frankness. Luckily, um, Halsey was in the room from the bank and in his diplomatic said, but yes, but you could turn it into a promising buy if you, along with your laptops, you add in some teacher support and coaching and so on. So, but I think what, what was great about that was you're actually starting to get ministers and, of course, their entourage they bring in the delegation thinking more deeply about the evidence. We weren't there 10 years ago, Laura. 
So, you know, I think that's extremely exciting. And um, Nick Sprawl yesterday said, look, should we also have a different starting point? And this is your first C in your five-act slant, which I absolutely love and always land well in discussions with governments. But should we be starting with their priorities rather than what Stefan calls our theory of ignorance where Stefan, Stefan calls it, but we're, we're just assuming that those in power want learning and that it assumes that they're waiting to be told what works and that once they have that knowledge, they're going to act and everything's going to change. Um, and I think that, um, you know, this is not necessarily where we, um, you know, where we... <coughs> where we know the truth is, and I think it demands a different way of working. So just to, just to finish on, on that graph um, there, in the middle box, if you remember, there was mixed methods. And I think um, this research opportunity, we still have some way to go on that. I think there was some great work with the Ethiopia team, with the Vietnam team. Um, you know, but Yamini yesterday, Yamini I, a fabulous anthropologist, called on us yesterday. She said, look, Let's not think of the qualitative as a nice to have that you report on, you, you know, you don't even report on, but actually that we have at every stage before we implement the RCT, you know, at the design stage, at the implementation stage, and at the analysis stage. And I think it's a really good challenge. And I think the, the other thing that we um, have started but need to build on, and I don't know where Claire Lieber is, but, you know, somebody who's always a champion of... Um, empowering researchers who are young and upcoming, and particularly researchers from the Global South. And I think it's wonderful to see sort of that sort of um, leadership from someone like Claire Lieber to encourage that um, young people come and see them progress in their academic careers. Um, and the way the community of practice, when you were using the... Um, you know, the diagnostic tool, actually went out and called on them to help pilot that. I think another great example. And, and I think going forward um, with the What Works Hub, we need to do more of supporting that um, localization. Thank you. Um, Lan, I'd, I'd like to pose a similar question to you. Um, because you've, you've said before that from the, from the start of RISE and many years before, the global community has known that learning has been an issue. Learning has been bedded into discourse and narratives on, on education. No one intended access to take over, right? Um, but the starting kind of, I guess, line in the original business case for RISE was we don't know enough about what works to improve learning at scale. Do we now? So I'm going to ignore that question <laughs> for a second. <laughs> and because I was thinking about how to illustrate kind of where we are on the system versus implementation. And I want to tell the story of an unrequited love of my youth. Um, <laughs> which was with a car. Um, I love the Ford Mustang. Uh, I was born in 1959. The 1966, 67, 68 Ford Mustang was the dream automobile. Uh, you know, Steve McQueen drove a Ford Mustang. It was just uh, so. <clears throat> and the Ford Mustang <laughs> was the epitome of cheap oil and no concern about emissions. So to make a fast car, you just made a huge engine. Right? And then all else was like around that. Then in, when I was 14, so just about ready to drive, <laughs> all of this relationship with the Ford Mustang was <laughs> imaginary, of course, to a teenager. Um, the OPEC shock hit, price of oil, quintuples. Uh, in addition, the environmental movement all of a sudden says, you know, our air is really, really dirty from all these cars. And so the automobile manufacturers were under enormous pressure, including legislation, to increase miles per gallon, increase fuel efficiency. So in 1975, uh, 
my older brother's best friend bought a brand new 1975 Ford Mustang, and it was a piece of shit. <laughs> it was the betrayal of my <laughs> years of lust because <laughs> this is a little too personal, I guess, but anyway. <laughs> but, you know, they, because the way the Ford had solved the problem of the trade-off of having a new objective of miles per gallon was they just put a four-cylinder engine in a Ford Mustang. But without really a fundamental rethink, without any improvement in efficacy in the way the system was designed, and so <laughs> it was just, it was underpowered. It like, it wasn't fast, it wasn't quick, it wasn't sexy, it wasn't anything. It was a piece of crap. I am still, as you can tell, bitter <laughs> about Ford Motor Company uh, having betrayed uh, my love. Now, what's the point, you may ask? <laughs> The point is, a lot of what we're hearing is on the assumption we can just drop a modular component into an existing education system and produce a better system. And that, I think, is the overall, now I'm getting back to the actual question you asked. The motivating question and I, I think the word scale gets people confused, right? The motivating question of RISE, it was, why do some education systems, as a result of the routine operation of the system, endogenously produce excellent learning outcomes and other systems don't? Now, that is intrinsically a question of scale, but it's not the question of how do we take this particular known thing and scale it in the system. It's the opposite of that. It's how does the system come to produce as, again, as a routine operate, as the routine endogenous outcome of the way in which the system operates, how does it routinely identify, assess, uh, uh, design, and implement uh, programs in the system. So interestingly, as yet today, no one's used the word Vietnam. <laughs> now Vietnam's a really interesting word because Vietnam achieves OECD levels of learning, roughly, at roughly the cost per pupil, at least in the past before education expenditures expanded rapidly in Vietnam with its economic growth, it was producing OECD levels of outcomes at roughly equivalent expenditure per pupil that many countries today already have. And so <laughs> the way the question is, like, how the hell does Vietnam do that, whereas other countries with similar expenditures don't, right? So I think we are much further along in uh, fleshing out what the functional characteristics of systems are, <laughs> but they're not unique mappings of one-to-one -one of design characteristics, right? It's, you know, functional systems do these things, but that doesn't elicit the granularity of how do these things get done. So I think we're more towards this, um, but when you, you know, when we talk about implementation science, <laughs> there's two radically different interpretations of that, right? One is the science of how do we get governments to implement what we think we already know they should be implementing to achieve desired outcomes. <laughs> and that inevitably leads to deliverology type approaches. And the other is what is the science of systems that, again, work such that they implement well and achieve the outcomes we want? And those are like radically different approaches. I, I, I call one, I was in a conversation where 
we're often in a situation where have, we've had massive <laughs> progress in science, but we don't actually have a science of progress because we don't actually have a science of how does progress happen. So. But I think in a way the same thing has happened with systems research and the word system has been interpreted and misinterpreted so many ways. I think, you know, from the, the test last year to all these documents, I mean, almost every strategy now from any funder implement, you know, the language, the zeitgeist language of the moment is systems. And it really wasn't 10 years ago. I'm not going to blame RISE for that, but. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to blame RISE. I mean, we, <laughs> the question is, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you got to get people to use the word. I don't know. I, this is a big question for, of, of a science of progress. Do you get people using the word system <laughs> and then gradually get them to understand what the hell they're talking about? But see, I think systems change has been interpreted as your first example, that yeah. systems change is to do something we already interpret and therefore need to mold the system to do. Yeah. And in a way, I've had the same question from, in a, you know, as, as you've Rise, you and the Rise team have been evolving the idea of, that started quite early on around coherence for learning and recognizing that um, purpose was going to be key and that commitment, the commitment of a certain number of actors in the system was going to need to be there. Um, my questions early on were, well, how do you achieve that coherence? Because I can see a way that that would also be interpreted to be from an external actor or indeed various internal actors within the system <laughs> with more right, perhaps, to say, well, how do we create it? And I think that is a sort of, there is a, there is a I still have today a real question. Can we create coherence for learning, can we create a sense of purpose in the system? Because who's going to tell any teacher or district education official that they don't have purpose? Um, can we create commitment not only to a certain set of policies, but also to the, to the implementation? Is it, is it possible to do that? And do you think RISE has helped us understand how to not have a future set of actors running out exactly trying to create that in wrong ways? Uh, I mean, what do you mean, we? <laughs> so, <laughs> when you ask the question, can we do X, Y, or Z? Like, who is it exactly is we? And I think if we is people in this room, the answer is for sure, absolutely not. Right? <laughs> uh, if we ask, can we people in this room contribute to assist at the local, national, state level, can we help people create this? Probably with a program of research and understanding what constraints they face, but, um, you know, we, this is where the challenge of the what works hub and implementation is just radically orders of magnitude more difficult than RISE, because RISE was a research program, <laughs> and we produced research, and we did a good job of producing research, but producing commitment is a, is a, really, uh, is a really challenging thing, and you have to say, you know, no amount of commitment from the global community is going to create commitment in South Africa or commitment in India that has to be created locally. And for me, what's your take on that? Is there commitment to learning in South Africa? Can you create more of it? And is there, I guess, building off this sort of uh, separation of a commitment to the goal versus commitment to the implementation that the last panel talked so much about, do you see a distinction? Is there commitment to one and not the other? I mean, I think there's a commitment to learning. I, I think. I'm yet to find what people have in their mind of when you think of a dysfunctional system, it means you stand at the gate and you just see everyone's running around in a school. People are sitting in staff rooms, children are at home. That's not what you see in a typical school. You walk in, they're all there, they're doing something. I um, mean, I don't think they're doing it to just pass the time. Um, I think there's a different idea about how to do it better, etc. Um, and that can be shifted, but I think Lant is right around how you shift that. And I think we have uh, maybe two examples. Um, one is around a design failure, which um, Jacobus and Stephen were part of. Um, we used to call it informed and empowered when we started 
it ended soon, in three months, and it was uninformed and disempowered <laughs> when we renamed it. And it was essentially this idea, global idea, give um, schools information, give parents information, they'll make different choices. No, that's not, was never going to work, we learned. Did a little qualitative study quickly, early. Uh, the principal was happy to convene parents the first time. Um, and then once we presented the, hey, your school's doing worse than the school next door, you could be doing better, you have the same inputs, etc. the school principal just didn't call them back. Like, and that was the end, finished. Um, does that mean that school principal wasn't committed to learning? Um, or were we using levers that are, didn't build credibility for the, for the school principal and for what they may perceived our mission to be? I think that's probably what happened there. Um, where's a different example where we've had a successful intervention that worked, we did it with an NGO, we had training at the beginning of each term, it happened on time as planned. Um, the current version is we're scaling up with the province and training happens, but there are lots of constraints and we've learned to live with that, that is the system. And so the budget constraints, the time cycles, academic time cycles that clash with financial time cycles that clash with their other district programs. Um, do I think that means they're not serious about learning outcomes? I, no, I think they are serious about learning outcomes, but it's around how do we take our programs or ideas that we think work, get buy-in, but also be flexible about how they get actually implemented. And so I'm more keen to see the results from that rather than this external, everything's perfect, but you actually are not in the system at all kind of work. Um, so yeah, I think there is a commitment, what it looks like, how you map it out, how you measure it, its timing are different depending on what level of the system you're working at. But you say that is the system, These, it is full of constraints. How in the design of something like that and then the kind of testing of the early <coughs> stages of it, how do you work out which of those constraints you can move? Which of them are movable and, and yeah. I think that's the, in our case, um, the advantage of being in the state, um, that we have a, a better understanding of who the various players are. And there's some trust um, that they have around sharing what the constraints are. Um, and it's just really engaging them on what they think is going to work. Um, so, I mean, it's even things like, yeah, engaging them effectively. I mean, the curriculum policy says you should be teaching a 12-week term. If you speak to the actual subject advisors, they tell you you're wasting your time. Uh, you should probably aim for eight to 10 weeks because in reality, there are assessment week, there are funerals, um, choir competitions, etc. And I mean, you could do the policy thing and have a 12 week curriculum that never gets taught. You could argue with them, let's make it 10 weeks so we can do a bit of extensions. But them feeling heard and accommodated in the curriculum means that they're your partners rather than in opposition to your curriculum and are actually implementing the curriculum rather than the design curriculum. Someone was presenting design versus um, implemented curriculum. So, yeah. So you've just, I mean, I don't hear a huge number of examples around the world of um, one really strong listening and kind of identification of various different people's views of what the problem is, but then also not policy design that tests it, brings it back and says, actually after three months, as you say, disempowered, you know, it's not, we're gonna change the name, we're just gonna stop the whole thing. Um, Rachel, turning to you on the challenge, as Lant put it, the challenge of the what works hard but implementation science, is that how implementation science looks like, you know, to, to enable governments and practitioners to pilot something, to listen first, to pilot something. So it's the whole old kind of PDIA test, learn, adapt um, model. How, I guess, two sort of sub questions, how can a research, mostly research program come in to support the enabling environment in order to have that happen? And if it was so easy, and Lant has said it's not easy, then how has it not happened more? already big questions yeah. <laughs> I think let me, let, let me start with 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 the first because um, I'd like to suggest that perhaps um, it's not just about the top-down trying to create the commi commitment but perhaps it's a totally different model we need in terms of the bottom-up and another little story 
surprisingly, sometimes the most unexpected things happen in a building like this. The third floor, coffee room, BSG. Always good for a bit of extra caffeine, a bit of uh, boost of the concentration, but sometimes also surprising things can happen there. And I had actually just been having a conversation with Kat um, Patillo, who had been telling me about the incredible example of Sobral, where if we talk about systems, that's where I think of genuine system reform, where you're, thinking, you know, you're talking about political commitment and trade unions and communities and your finance ministries. And, and Kat had shared that how they went from you know, at grade two, going from 40% learning to 92% learning, um, just in three years. And this is one of the poorest states in the country of Brazil. Incredible progress. So how did that sort of commitment happen? Anyway, back to the coffee machine. I was up there um, just minding my own business. And, of course, suddenly there was Dennis from Lehman Foundation. You think, you're always meeting amazing people here. And I thought, OK, this is my moment to say it was just the start of the pilot for the WhatWorks Hub, and we were testing different sort of different ideas. And I thought, what about taking a group from our, a couple of our pilot countries, so Kenya and Pakistan, what about taking a group to see this? Because I'd found that as quite a powerful mechanism working in Nepal and India, that exemplars from the bottom up are often more inspiring than evidence from the top down. So I thought, okay, let's see if this works. And, and after you know, a bit of persuasion... Um, Dennis saying, well, you know, really, we just do the scaling in Brazil. And I said, yes, but, you know, you know, sharing that lesson more widely, wouldn't that be interesting? Finally, he said yes. And what was interesting is they said, no, it's not for you as the donor to go and then identify who should go in terms of um, the individuals. We'll do that. And actually, an anchor organisation in the country will do that. And um, I was a bit like, oh, hang on, we're paying for this in my usual kind of donor. <laughs> okay. okay, okay, we'll leave it to the anchor organisation. Unsurprisingly, the anchor organisations chosen ended up with independent criteria, independent assessment, ended up being PAL network members. Uh, you know, independent, respected, understanding evidence, but not politically aligned to any one partner. And for the first time, really, in my, in my career, I saw a group of different peoples from different elements of the system coming together. What did they do? Lant, you know, when you took everyone out of their comfort zone, and let's not forget how difficult this programme was at the beginning, it was hard. <laughs> And Lant used to take everyone out of their comfort zone and do things like go to climbing walls and make dancing. us all made us dance. dancing. Do you remember the time you brought your wife to make everyone do some art? I mean, you know, or, or the time I hated the most, which was that, that dreadful improv session. Oh, my gosh. Here in this very building, how to humiliate people. Well, anyway, Lant's way of putting people out of their comfort zone was much more pleasant now, on retrospect, than what they did in Brazil. They took everyone, and for three days, we went into the basement of some vanilla hotel in Sao Paulo. We didn't have a window in the whole room. And for three days, they started you know, doing all this psychological, you know, what do you, what, you know, what's your worst characteristic, and what are the traumatic things in your childhood? And, and I was like, what? And I was sort of, after three days, I was thinking, I thought we were going to see system reform. I thought I was going to see some classrooms and children. What are we doing? And, um, however, there was, you know, there was a method in the madness. And those people who, when they walked off the aeroplane down the tarmac, didn't know each other and didn't really want to talk to each other because the trade unions definitely did not see eye to eye with the teacher trainer um, lead or the Ministry of Finance member who was on that course. They walked back, not only with common respect and as comrades, as we might say, but they walked back with a common mission and an outcome that they believed in that was, that was not predetermined by someone, but it was based on what they believed were the problems. And I think it's, you know, it was a really inspiring um, model um, that I haven't, haven't seen um, before. So what does that mean? I think that means that we do need a shift in culture, Laura, I think we need a shift in culture and how we use evidence. I think we need a shift um, in culture around using that to test, learn, adapt. And I think we need a shift in culture in terms of the local ownership of it. Um, during the course, I, um, 
we, I was also told that I couldn't be a fellow. And I thought, well, but I, would, I, I believe in this change just as much as you. Why, why can't I be a fellow on this programme? And I said, well, at least my Kenyan counterpart, you know, they're Kenyan, they could be a fellow, and my Pakistani counterpart, they could be a fellow, seeing Baylor's laughing over there um, as the anchor organisation in, in Pakistan. No, you're still a donor, and you <laughs> are usually dogmatic about determining the agenda. And this is a different model, this is a different approach, and it's about a, you know, a locally owned and a locally led problem identification and solution. So I think, um, I think it's really interesting. I think the challenge, therefore, perhaps, for the What Works Hub is more about how do we then identify what technical assistance might be you know, demanded and us being responsive to that to help then with a gold standard, if you like, of... Um, the change that they're trying to enact. So ensuring your alignment, um, Lant, I mean, thinking about the Sabral. So the Kenyan team went back saying their mission was going to be to create a Sabral of Kenya. And they wanted, at scale in terms of one district, to try and model what they'd seen. The challenge is, you know, you go back and you don't necessarily have the best assessment system. You don't necessarily have the teaching and learning materials. Um, they may not be produced. They may not be being locally created. So how do you then provide the appropriate support and so on to help, help do that and at the same time um, help support sufficient evidence generation to do your test, adapt and learn, um, which again is a challenging thing to do. So you've got me really nervous about the trip that some of us in the room are going on to Sabral <laughs> in November. <laughs> get, get ready for your stories. Um, <laughs> But I, I want to put your, your challenge almost back to Mpumi. And if, if that is what the What Works Hub needs to do, if that's what implementation science looks like, getting um, researchers, practitioners, government to be working hand in hand almost, you know, kind of changing that culture of practice in a way, is that possible? What would it take? Are you, I mean, you, you've given two examples where you're starting to see it, but... Um, what we're saying here, really, and what, what I'm drawing from, from what you're saying, Rachel, is that a change in the practice of evidence can help contribute in and of itself to improvements of learning. Uh, do, you, do you think that's possible, feasible, and what would it take? Yeah, I think so. So I think the first thing is um, research is still underfunded um, in general. Uh, I know even the work we do, which is a lot of work, um, is, has a lot of external funding. Um, uh, the internal funding is sort of for our salaries and hopefully, I don't know, desktop work, um, analyzing existing data sets, but innovation, actually trialing things, piloting, doing the case studies, etc., needs money, actual money, uh, which we often don't have in the budgets. And in times like now, we have budget crunches, which are in fact saying we should travel even less, intervene even less, monitor remotely, etc., um, so that kind of support financially is needed. I think there is a recognition around technical aspects of what we don't know. So I, I think most governments are open to, we don't know how to teach robotics and coding, if that's the thing you want to support. <laughs> I'm not going to comment on whether you should do that. But there are technical questions that are unknown, and I think people are willing to admit that. Um, there are aspects where people know something but need resources to deepen their knowledge. So, for example, the teaching of reading in African languages in South Africa is not something we'd want to outsource. It's something you can fund that's happening in the country. Um, how you roll out, etc., could then have some technical aspects to it. Uh, and then there's some behavioral um, research that we can bring that can be world-class around how you change people's beliefs, um, how much exposure do people need to start believing children can learn, um, what do we learn from coaching, for example, how long does it take for someone to actually change their practice. Those are things you can learn from the global north or other places. Um, and then there's the, I guess, the recognition that's necessary from researchers, donors, etc., that they don't know everything, right? So there's a undermining or mutual respect that happens both ways, um, and that can be explicit or it can be implicit. You go to the training and you just keep doing whatever you were doing. Um, but I think if we get to those kinds of things that are 
are, are less like counting and ticking boxes and, and more relational. Uh, there is an opportunity for collaboration, it's a big need. Um, it's, we have scarce resources, we have uh, large problems that need to be resolved and best minds um, applying themselves to that is a useful thing. So I think definitely doable, but should be thought through um, carefully. Lant, I think you have views on that on that question too, in a way, right? The um, <laughs> does, does, well, does well, yeah. I mean, take your pick. But does um, will the study of implementation from your point now yeah. as sort of research director of Rise, looking forward to the questions? And as I say, we heard many, many questions today on implementation. Many more, I think, on politics. I have to say, but I'm biased on that one. You know, there's a lot of kind of the politics didn't work, but. Can implementation be studied? Can that culture shift happen? Will it help? So, strangely enough, I was just read a document that quoted me um, as saying something I had never said, <laughs> but which, <laughs> but which I liked. So now I, I did. Uh, <laughs> which is that, um, you know, a discipline is a group of people who agree on what counts as a question and agree on what counts as an answer to a question. And a very serious problem, any commingling of what would be academically published research and implementation is that there isn't a discipline in which uh, uh, you know, what these questions that we're answering count as questions. And in particular, there isn't a discipline that has agreed upon what counts as an answer to these questions that is sufficiently scientific, and my fingers just can't help do this, scientific and rigorous. Uh, and that is a first order problem. It's a first order problem because academia is completely, totally controlled by the disciplines. And so if you can't ask a world-class researcher as a junior, non-tenured person trying to make their way in the world to not respond to his or her chosen discipline. And if your discipline, <laughs> like my second love after the Ford Mustang was economics, um, <laughs> uh, who I met just before my wife. But chronologically, my discipline, some disciplines work backwards. They say, here's what counts as an answer. Therefore, the only questions that count are the questions that can be answered with the method we have decided is the method of what counts as an answer. And you know, today and every day in which economists talk, we're obsessed with causal identification. And if you don't have clean, and I love the word clean because it's like a ritual purity clean. They don't mean, they mean clean like a religion means clean. If you don't have clean identification, it can't be an answer to a question. Uh, and yet the questions that we're asking are going to be incredibly difficult to frame into a way in which the affiliated, the associated disciplines that dominate academia will recognize as an answer. And since they don't, you know, and if you've defined what counts as a question by the questions that you can answer, which has very much happened, then you can't get research in the academically publishable, academically rewarded way embedded in this. And, you know, <laughs> I'm looking at Gnome, this is a first order challenge of attempting to integrate research and practice. I'm going to open out to any questions uh, in the room now, Tahir. You know, generals fight last, what is it, the, the previous generation's battle, so before we start what works, we got to fight the rise battle uh, and, and work through the system before we can get to implementation. No, Blant, seriously, I mean, I think this is a good point. Right? But there are ways of thinking about systems which are not ad hoc or anything, right? Mathematics has dynamical systems. And we have this idea of a state variable which is slow to move and then the control variable and the elusive search for control variables which at the World Bank became like growth regressions, anything on the right-hand side could move and all that and you know, which went nowhere. Um, so the point is that you know, 
some of it is how do you move a state variable? And I'd like to think that you know some of it is the, the hard problem which you are describing is what we call an equilibrium. Uh, you know, when things are in equilibrium, and particularly start thinking of intuition of a Nash equilibrium, uh, where you know it's self-enforcing, nobody has an incentive to deviate and all that, it's a stable equilibrium of some sort. And all throughout we read economic history, other things, you know, we don't know even if Vietnam exists and Pakistan exists and both are equilibria, right? Nash and many others have said, you know, just nobody knows really how to move. Theory doesn't tell us at least too much on how to move from one equilibrium to another one. And I think that's a real problem. I mean, I think that's a deep question about social change. So this is not just about technocratic solutions to various things, and this is a problem which in economic history has been studied. There are different disciplines, sub-disciplines have studied. And I think this is a good way to think, and, and you know, we did try to do it, right? In our idea about thinking about the village as a closed market, and therefore we could look at an equilibrium very locally. So it was an equilibrium. Right, a market-based equilibrium, you, you, you shake it. It takes 20 years to study it, right? I mean, we are still waiting to see whether where it comes down. So part of the report card study is, but it has to be some idea of a general equilibrium, right? We don't know what the relationships are fixed. So the, my definition of system really comes back to economics as an idea of a general equilibrium. So my sense is you move things, and then things have to work out endogenously afterwards. And then the question is, you know, as what is the Chumpeter said, a new circular flow, as they said, right? I mean, that's what you're talking about. I mean, I think it, it takes time, and you have to really think about it. And then implementation is maybe just one of the shocks that you can try out. But you've got to have some idea of figuring out how to study the system. And I don't think that, you know, in macro, the beloved field, it's really difficult to figure out what's going on with systems. The debates are endless, right? I mean, how do systems evolve, change? Uh, so my sense is that you've got to think in, in, in localized ways of very, you, you, where the conceptual idea of the system still is there, but it's still, at least, you can study it, you can shock it, you can trace it, you can see its evolution, you can see whether it comes to a new resting place. Uh, the challenge is, I mean, you put an impossible question, right? I mean, you know, can we replicate China? Can we replicate Vietnam? Can we do this? Either you become like a change of discipline, become comparative politics or something, uh, which we, you know, so I, I think that those are good questions. I think that we, we will have to think about it. I think that RISE at least forced us to think about a system. What do we mean really even conceptually? And I think this will, you know, I don't think we have an answer of what is implementation science, but at least we can start thinking about it. And, and where does it fit in into some of these kind of disciplinary concepts? And is there a way to think about it? So, okay. Thank you. Um, I'll turn back to Lant and then Pumi and Rachel. Uh, any thoughts on those comments? I'm going to use a word that I barely know what it means, but ontology. Ontology is actually really important in deciding how one goes about researching something, because the ontological character of what you're researching <laughs> influences what a science of that ontological entity would be, right? And the, there's behavioral sciences which are about the behavior of human beings, and human beings we understand really unbelievably well, right? Uh, intuitively, right? <laughs> and then there's the science of objects, which again, we understand we have amazing progress in the science of objects. But both implementation science and systems are talking about ontological things that are neither agents who are driven by a teleological desire to achieve certain ends, and then we understand agents in terms of why they're doing what they're doing, but we understand agents and the why, we understand objects like this table in terms of the what, but, but neither organizations nor systems are ontologically agents, nor are they ontologically objects. And so that creates a whole series of really deep questions of what, what a science of organizations looks like. And in the word implementation science, <clears throat> it's also not obvious what the unit the most important unit is, is it the organization, which is at least a legally fiction that's identifiable, or is it a system, 
and a system is by definition almost an amalgam of very different ontological objects. So anyway, so I'm, I'm just coming to even a, a bare minimum understanding of what <laughs> the phrase implementation science might even mean in terms of what's the ontological character of the reference of the, of the thing isn't settled by any stretch of the imagination. There are, yeah, there's a number of challenges, challenges. And I wanted to ask Noam if you wanted to finish on anything related to the What Works Hub. Our goal as the What Works Hub is to make progress and to make sure more children are learning and we understand rigorously how to do that. So one question I have for the panel is now that we're shifting from this theme of systems to implementation, what do you think we should keep common so we don't lose the amazing work that's happened over the last period? And what do you think we actually should do differently uh, as we move to implementation? Um, so that was my question. And I also realized we didn't actually say who I was. I'm the academic director of the What Works Hub. Uh, so thank you. Why don't we finish with each of you giving 30 seconds on the response to Noam? Um, sure. Um, I think the, the systems thinking aspect is still key. It's understanding what your program was, what you're doing and at every level. So you know, you ha are you having a design failure, a delivery failure, a bureaucratic failure, a service provider failure, etc. And so that whole systems thinking, <laughs> system strengthening, system scaling, I think is important. I don't think it should be a competition between systems and implementation. Um. So I think in order to create a sub-discipline of implementation science, you need to change the conception of research from evaluating the impact of an intervention to evaluating the impact of the initiation of a process and then trace the process as part of the research. So it isn't just implementation of did they do it, because otherwise you're, you're, you're intrinsically in top-down mode right? Because the intervention is pre-designed and implementation is a separate stage. And so anyway, so I, and, and figuring out how to make that an acceptable, rigorously methodological thing is, I think, the first order issue for, a, for a, the research and academic component of the What Works Hub. Because that's how things happen. They happen as a process uh, you know, I have jargon about this, like crawl of the design space versus, you know, most RCT is we're going to we're going to attempt to evaluate a specific design, as opposed to we're going to initiate a process in which the system is crawling the design space to find something effective. And how you research that process is, I think, the key. <laughs> I would say three, three things, Noam, to your, to your question. I think let's continue to be producing that incredible quality of robust evidence that we saw in the graph. Um, but let's make sure it's costed. And in that costing, let's also consider equity. The second thing is, um, I think we need to do what Lance has said, um, is actually perhaps it's wrongly named as the What Works Hub to think about this being the How Works Hub. And I think um, that's a challenge um, to you and the team, Noam. And I think the last thing is, um, on this discipline, let's be ambitious um, on implementation science. Um, as Tahir and others said, you know, we're at the beginning of the journey of even thinking about what um, implementation science really means. But perhaps we need to be ambitious and have you know, even a journal. I don't think special issues will cut it. We need journals where people can publish on this, where they have the academic incentives um, that allow them to, to be professional in the space. And I hope that that community of practice that has been just so phenomenal in RISE continues to grow. And it grows with all of those you nurture from the Global South as well, so that in the future they are leaders and their leaders support the children um, of the future. Thank you. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. 
And if you liked it, be sure to check out our research at riseprogram.org or follow us on social media at riseprogram. You can find links to the research mentioned and other work shared under the description for this podcast episode. The RISE podcast is brought to you by the Research on Improving Systems of Education RISE program through support from the UK's Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office, Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation.